what turns a coward of false bravado into a genuine, courageous, bold evangelist? Peter had a high opinion of himself. When Jesus told the disciples that upon his arrest, they would all scatter, Peter said, hey, the rest of them may scatter, but I won't scatter. And then Jesus predicted, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Peter, still full of false bravado, said, not me. I will die with you. Yet later that evening, as he's warming himself by a charcoal fire, a servant girl comes and says, I, th I think you're with him. And he denies it. Asked again, he denies it. And then when asked a third time, he calls a curse upon himself if he's lying. And he swears that he never knew Jesus. The abandonment and betrayal could not have been starker. Yet in the passage today, we see a totally different person. We see a bold, courageous Peter who stands before the Sanhedrin and not only stands up for Jesus, but says things he himself would never have predicted he would say. Where does this boldness come, this transformation? Perhaps if we see, maybe we can get a little of it ourselves. So, Father, I pray that you would connect us back to this story, that you, we would be allowed to see the work you're doing, you did in Peter and in John. And we pray that we would have same work done in our lives. In some ways, Lord, I, I feel like in many sermons, like a hypocrite, because I do not have this boldness. May I and each of us listen, we who do not have this boldness, may we listen today and be moved by your spirit, by the truth, by our connection to Christ, to become bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to first establish what was going on and that there was Peter and John were put before an incredibly hostile council, much, much scarier than a servant girl or others who were around that charcoal fire. Then we're going to look at the courage and boldness as Peter proclaims Jesus Christ in front of the people who had Jesus crucified. And then we will look at what was happening in Peter's life that made him so bold. So let's start with, with what's going on in this story and in the hostile situation that Peter entered. We begin in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
They arrested him and they put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. So what's the context is they were preaching. John and Peter were preaching in Acts chapter 3 after they had healed a man who had been paralyzed. And that healing was so spectacular and momentous that crowds of thousands gathered around Peter. And so he took the opportunity to preach. And he connected to the audience and said, I don't know why you're so amazed because it's not we, it's not us who did this miracle. It's Jesus Christ. He did the miracle. It's the same one that you voted against, you wanted crucified. And you did this in your ignorance. But Christ, you need to now repent about Christ because God raised him from the dead and proved that he is who he said he was. And so the Sadducees and the captain guard come upon this and and they are greatly annoyed. They are mad. They are angry, probably on three counts. One is they, like most of the other religious sects, felt that they were keepers of God's truth. And they were well-educated, and so were these common, uneducated men doing, trying to teach the people, which was their job. Secondly, they were doing it on the turf of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were populated most of the priestly class, and they were preaching at Solomon's portico. They were preaching in the court of the temple itself. But as this passage brings out, what really infuriated them was they were preaching that somebody rose from the dead. Pharisees believed in resurrection. They believed in afterlife, but Sadducees did not. Um, Josephus points out that the Sadducees denied the resurrection, the immortality of the soul, eternal rewards, or the world to come. So they're angry because these uneducated teachers are teaching this fanciful view of the future that leads to no good, does no real good for life here and now because they are all about the here and now. They're offended by those who live life in light of something beyond this life. So they arrest him and they throw him in prison. So put yourself in Peter's shoes at this point. He's preaching and what he gets for it is The Sadducees, these very important people, the temple guard, they take him and now they're in prison and they spend the entire night in prison, I'm sure wondering what's going to befall them. And the next day, their worst nightmare apparently seems to come true. They are brought to trial before the Sanhedrin as we read verse 3. The next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. This describes the Sanhedrin, the most important, esteemed ruling body of Jews. They were in some ways the Supreme Court of Israel. 
And among them, of course, are the high priests. Annas had been high priest. He had now passed that to Caiaphas. The other two were John and Alexander, clearly part of the high priestly family. So you have the most important people of Israel, those who make the judgments. You are now standing before the Sanhedrin. When Jesus was arrested, he was taken first to Annas' house. Then he was taken to Caiaphas' house. And then he was taken before the Sanhedrin. And they did not have the power to execute Jesus, but they had the power to ask Rome to execute him. And that's what they did. And so Peter stands not before the servant girl, but before the very council that got Jesus crucified. And so, they, verse 7 says, When they set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Now, there were two grounds to convict John and Peter. One was if the miracle was a hoax then they could convict him. But it's very clear the miracle was not a hoax. This man who was 40 years old, meaning he's probably crippled for 40 years, now can walk. No, this is not a hoax. The second ground they can convict him is if they did it by unlawful means. And that's what this question is trying to get at. In whose name, by what power, did you do this miracle? If Peter had said, God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob did this miracle through us, he would have been speaking truth and been let off. But he didn't say that, and this is where we see the courage and boldness of Peter. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. <clears throat> Do you see what Peter is doing? Two months earlier, he said, I don't know him. I don't know him. May I be cursed before God. If I'm lying, I don't know him. And that's around the charcoal fire. Now he stands before the most powerful council, the one that can do the same to him that they did to Jesus. And he says, I did it by Jesus' name. Take that. But he not only, notice, he not only declares Jesus. He says, let it be known to all of you 
and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, this person has been healed. So it's one thing to say, well, Jesus did it, and, uh, but we'll keep it private. You know, faith should be private. We'll keep it private. No, he's saying Jesus did it, and you all need to get that message, and all of Israel needs to get that message. But he goes even further. He says, it did it in the name of Jesus, by the way, whom you crucified. Peter is asking for it. He dares to blame them, to put the responsibility on them where it rightly belongs. He brings it out. You are guilty of crucifying the, the, the Jesus Christ of miracles, of resurrection. But he doesn't stop there. That it's you, Jesus, you crucified. God raised him from the dead. You are not following God because God has put his stamp of approval on Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone that you rejected. And then he goes a step further. Because at this point, we might think, well, okay, Jesus is, Jesus is one way, and we, the Jewish people, have another way to salvation. But Jesus says, no. That there is no other name that a person can be saved by than the name of Jesus Christ. There is not our way in your way. Our way is to God, and it is the only way to God, and your way is to condemnation, and any other way outside of the name of Jesus Christ is a way of condemnation. In some ways, they perhaps understood that because Judaism itself was an exclusivistic religion. They had Yahweh and all the other gods were false. But even if you're exclusive, you don't like it when somebody else says, but I've got the right God and you've got the wrong God and you are condemned. But they preached this message in front of the Jewish crowd and now thousands more have come to Jesus Christ. And they would send that message out into a pluralistic society. For in the Roman Greco cultures, there are all sorts of God. There's no God who's supreme over all the other gods. We have a God for our city. You've got a God for your city. We've got a God for this activity and that activity. We've got a, a plethora of gods. And it's good to worship all of them. And yet they're going to bring this message out into that pluralistic culture and says, no, there is only one God. There is only one way to that God, that is Jesus Christ. This message is very offensive to the Jew and to the Gentile. And it's very offensive today.
Christians are being marginalized today because we align ourselves with the word of God and with Jesus Christ. And there are a number of issues in which we are seen as mean-spirited and hateful. The one that's perhaps coming most recently to the surface is our exclusivism, our belief that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And because of that, we are seen as hateful uh, senators have called Christians who've stood before confirmation in confirmation hearings have called them Islamophobes and they've said we a person who is an Islamophobe does not deserve to hold an office and so they start to judge us for our exclusivism and we are judged as being hateful and mean, and we don't want to be seen that way. So it's very tempting to cave on that and to say, well, Jesus is a way. Jesus is actually the way for everybody, but you don't have to believe in him. He's, he's, he's the one who's provided for you. But as Peter says, no, there's no other name in heaven that you call upon other than Jesus Christ. The reason I believe that we are seen as mean, as hateful people when we preach Christ is because most people around us create their own view of God. We call it the smorgasbord God, where you can go to, some people go to various religions and take a piece from this religion and that religion and that religion. Others go to a, a denomination and they say, I like these two pieces, I don't like this, these pieces. And so because people are creating their own God in their own minds, they attach your statements about God to you as a person. If you're a nice person, then you would say, everybody, God will accept everybody because you create a God who's nice like that. So if you create a God who's exclusive, that means you're a hateful person, you're a judgmental person, you're an exclusive person. And so that's why our culture today looks at us because they don't realize we're not creating our own God. We're going to scripture, to the revelation that we believe comes from God. And we are proclaiming what he says. We can't pick and choose. And so it's not us who is mean. It, it, it's really God who's mean, right? And so if people got that, they would say, yeah, well, your, your God is mean. Why? Because he condemns. And he condemns because he is loving because loving people are also just people. And God is loving and he is just. And when we are honest with ourselves, we realize we want justice. I remember when, after the bombing at the marathon, President Obama came out 
and said, we will do everything in our power to find the people who did this and we will put the full measure of the law upon them that there will be justice. And we all said, yes, that's right. We want justice. Today, we look at sex trafficking, <clears throat> racism, genocide, prejudice, sexism, homophobia, and we say, that's wrong, and the people of power should condemn those things because that's justice. Today, we work for social justice to take place in this world. We want justice, so we want to have a God who is just. And when he's just, he condemns fairly and rightly. The problem with we have is where God draws the line. See, we want to be on the side of the line where we're not condemned. But the Bible says, no, you're on the side. You are condemned. And Paul says in Romans, if you are judged simply by your own standard of judgment, if you are judged by what you have said about other people, what you have criticized and what you have judged about them, if you were measured by that, you'd be condemned. Uh, Romans 1 and 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. If we fail our own standard, can we imagine? Of course we fail God's standard. You know, I think the only good thing about what's happening in America today, in the discord, the, the tearing apart of the fabric of our nation and people against people, is because we are so judgmental of one another, we should clearly, we should be able to look in the mirror and see how we have failed our own judgments. But those on the left who have held up tolerance as among the greatest of virtues today are among the most intolerant people the most hateful, the most condemning, and the most judgmental people. If they could just look in the mirror, they would see, I'm in trouble. And those on the right who tweet out hateful and, and truly mean-spirited things, who label and manipulate, try to manipulate uh, against other people, if they looked in the mirror, they would realize they're in trouble. And we Christians, 
who say we trust God, but wring our hands over what's happening in our world today. Or we say we're, we're loving, and yet we make decisions that are really based only on our self-interest. If we looked in the mirror, we would realize we're condemned. God is a God of justice, and we would want a God of justice. He condemns, but the beauty of it is he took the condemnation that we all deserve and placed it on his son. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God does not want to condemn us. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. So he could be just against sin, but still the justifier, the one who pays for the sin, pays for the penalty of sin, so he can embrace us. So his love exploded into this world for that very reason, not to condemn. So that everybody who is condemned has the way out to God, into eternal life with God. The only one who paid for that sin is Jesus Christ. I remember when uh, <clears throat> I stood before my boss and explained while I was uh, leaving the job, and I said, uh, I want to go to this Christian training that's happening. It's six weeks long. And person said, well, if you become a minister, I just hope, you know, you're one of those ministers who does lots of good social things and doesn't try to tell people Jesus is the only way. I said, well, it must sound, it must sound judgmental to say Jesus is the only way. And she said, yeah. So I asked, do you know why Jesus said he's the only way? And she said, no. It's because our sin separates us from God. Jesus Christ took our sin. Nobody else took our sin. In every other system, they work their way. And we can't work our way. For our righteousness is it's like rags. So Jesus is the only way because he's the only one that paid for us. And so Peter presents that message. Of course, it's not well received. They go back together and they consult and they're very, very irritated, of course, by what has been said and what has been taught. I mean, they just crucified Jesus. They thought they had, they'd ended the issue, but now it's cropping up big time. Thousands are coming to, to, to Christ building this Christian community, and now you've got these big voices, and they're saying, uh, we crucified God's Messiah, the one God sent to, to save the world. Uh, I think they really wanted to say, let's go to Pilate and make sure they get the same 
treatment that Jesus got. But they have a problem now. After they had arrested Jesus, they were able to pay people to stand against Jesus, and they were able to uh, get them to lie before the court. And when the, the, the crowd was offered Barabbas or Jesus, they were able to get the crowd to say, give us Barabbas. That's not the case now. Because they look outside and they see this man is healed. He's standing before everybody. We can't deny that miracle. And look at all the people praising God and worshiping God because of what happened. We, we really can't do anything right now. But we can't let this message continue. We've got to stop this message. So they bring them back in and they threaten them. Just keep this message to yourself. Don't say anything else. And of course they say in response, so you're telling us that the message God has given us, we should keep silent? That's not going to happen. God gave us this message. We're going to speak this message just like you would if God gave you the message. What do you do with them? You just threaten them and intimidate them and send them on their way. So you see incredible courage and boldness of a coward. What, what, what brought the transformation? Well, we can see three things. One, the first, you, you probably can tell me. The Holy Spirit. When Peter spoke, he said, filled with the Holy Spirit. And the, the whole chapter culminates with the whole room was shaken when they prayed. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out and preached the message boldly. The Holy Spirit does that. So the question becomes, what does that mean for us? I mean, the Holy Spirit did it for them. You know, maybe if we pray and the room shakes and we all know that we got the Holy Spirit, we're just going to, we'll explode out into our community. But is that going to happen? What, is, what does it mean for us? And so as we explore it, we see it's the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But what, what does that mean? And it seems to me that there's two different types of filling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Luke uses a different word in Acts than Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5. For Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be addicted to wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And there what he's saying is, you don't need to get more of the Spirit. You need the Spirit to get more of you. Because the Spirit already lives in you. The Spirit dwells in believers. So Paul is talking about, let the Spirit have more control. He, I think it parallels his teaching, walk in the Spirit. Which we do by connecting and abiding in Jesus Christ. If you abide in Christ, you are. You will bear the fruit. There's only one way to bear fruit. It's by abiding in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is a fruit. That's where you get it. But this seems to be like almost, it seems to be more, more external, especially with the room shaking. So is, is there another type of filling that just happens where the Lord gives a special empowerment, a special boldness, like he did to Peter and uh, the rest of the group? And it seems that's the case, but that's not something we we control. We can control to some extent walking in the Spirit. We can't control the external work of God. But we can, in each case, stay very connected to Christ 
because that's the only way that the filling of the Holy Spirit comes. Um, <clears throat> and of course, Jesus predicted when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me. He will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is about glorifying Jesus Christ. It's not about glorifying himself. It's not about giving us tingly feelings. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's gonna speak Jesus Christ. And so maybe there are these times where there's this special movement of the Spirit. And perhaps you felt it in certain worship services where you say, you know, there's, there's almost this tangible sense of the Spirit here. Sometimes I've heard people say, walk in and say, the Spirit of God is here. I think there perhaps was one case in my life when I heard a sermon and I decided about evangelism. I said, I'm going to go evangelize every one of the people I work with. And that afternoon I went and I preached to four different people or families, preached Christ. And then I went to the last one. And this was a woman who, who headed up, one of the first workers of ACORN. Some of you know, some of you don't. But it was a very, very powerful organization in uh, Arkansas at the time. It was only in Arkansas. Very powerful. And it had, it had big people like Tyson, Chicken, and scared. And so I went to her, and I was intimidated. And so I went there to share the gospel, and I had a conversation, and then I finally said, well, I got to go. And the phone rang. And she answered the phone, and right then... It was clear God was saying, you stay seated. You said you were going to preach the gospel. You preach the gospel. She got off the phone, and there was a boldness. No longer intimidated. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that really meant more. I preached the Christ, and she said, I want to hear more later. I went back the next day. She wasn't there. A neighbor came and said, she, uh, she's in the hospital, she's in the psych ward, she put her head through a window last night. And she, had, she was an alcoholic. I went to the hospital, shared Christ, she accepted Christ. The next day I went back to see her and she said, now I know why you're so happy all the time. So there are these moments, I believe, that the Spirit of God gives you a special, special empowerment. But do we need that necessarily? Well, Paul said, he asked the church of Ephesus, pray for me, pray for boldness. He doesn't say pray that I get this extra work of the Holy Spirit, then I'll be bold. He says pray for me for boldness. So we need to stay connected to Christ. That's where the power of the Spirit comes. And we need to be praying for one another. And that's the second thing we see about Peter's boldness here is he is connected to a community that is led to pray and reach out. Sound familiar? It's one of our Sunday school classes. Notice, <clears throat> verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. This is not just an add-on. This is not Peter going back and saying, hey, look at what I did today. This is the, his community, his community that's been praying for him, his community that's praised now, and his community that's going to pray later when he is arrested. 
He's connected there because prayer moves the hand of God. Prayer is powerful. And the support of one another is essential in boldness for us to go preach the gospel. Uh, Ajith Fernando in one of his commentaries said, many factors can help those who lack boldness to witness. One's the realization of the urgency of the gospel. People are lost without it. Another is prayer, asking God to give us opportunities for witness and to help us when opportunities arise. A third is involvement in a witnessing community. Though we may afraid, be afraid to speak when alone, the presence of another Christian with us can increase our courage. Note how Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Even when we are alone, the knowledge that we belong to a witnessing community that expects its members to witness acts as a motivation to take the first steps in a witnessing situation. The first steps are often the hardest. Essentially saying there's almost an accountability. There's an expectation. We've gathered together because we're going to be evangelists, and so that motivates us to be the evangelists. But there's more to it, and we see in this passage. Being in a community keeps us connected to truths about God that we need to be steeped in to be bold. Look at their prayer. When the community heard this, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Notice where they start. We heard this news. They're after you. We have a sovereign God. He made everything. He's on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? And it's the community that together prays that, supporting each other in that truth, a truth we certainly need to believe if we're going to be bold. And then they articulate it more clearly. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so they're threatened. Who knows what's going to happen to them? They can be arrested again. They can be crucified. But they say, we have a sovereign God we can trust in. And that most horrendous event that ever took place in history, when humanity rejected their God in Jesus Christ, when they ridiculed him and crucified him, proclaiming victory over him, that horrific event was orchestrated by God. Everything's orchestrated by God. And Jesus had Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, Israel. He had the world against him. And it was orchestrated by God. You ever feel the world's against you? We have a sovereign God. He's on our side. He's working out his plan. And so they've connected to that God. These are truths we need to know, grasp, and it's the community that helps us stay connected. We pray them together. And then they give their prayer request. Now, Lord, look at the threats 
and keep us from being arrested so we can keep preaching the gospel. Oh, no, that, that's my prayer request. No, uh, their prayer request was, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with boldness. They don't pray for relief from the persecution. They just pray, God, take note of it. You know, you're sovereign. You know, I just may, we know, you know what we're going through. And that's enough for us. Because our desire is not how do we keep from being arrested. Our desire is to preach Jesus Christ boldly. There's one more thing that's hidden a little earlier in the passage, which makes us Peter so bold. Uh, <clears throat> it's when he said, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. You know, the, the cornerstone in that day was the most important stone and it was the first one set in place. So the entire building was structured around that stone. That stone determined the place of every other stone. And it's saying, that's what Jesus Christ is, and he's that in my life. He's the chief cornerstone who determines everything in my life. He determines my purpose. He determines my identity. He determines my perspective in life. He determines my, uh, the fact I can be bold. He determines my value. He determines my future. He determines my all in all. And so when Christ becomes the, the cornerstone of your life, when your life becomes about Jesus Christ, your desire is going to be to preach Jesus Christ. Amazing, isn't it, what Peter did? The transformation in, in a couple months. I'm not very bold. When I've preached the sermon, I hope you all become bold. Some ways I don't like to preach this sermon because maybe I'm supposed to apply it. Pray for me that I apply it. That I stay so connected to Christ that it's the Holy Spirit who lives through me. That I become a community that just doesn't have fellowship hour together, but truly fellowships connects life to life become prayer warriors for each other. And that Jesus Christ would not simply, in my words, be the cornerstone of my life, but truly be the cornerstone of my life. Father, we thank you for Peter. We can look at him and say, ha, ah, I didn't fail as bad as he did. And then we look at Peter and say, I didn't do that. <laughs> I don't see how I could ever do that. And the answer is we can't ever do that because it's your spirit who did that in Peter's life. And it's your spirit whom Jesus Christ sent to glorify himself, dwells in every single Christian. May we let him out and let him 
glorify Jesus Christ through our words and through our lives. Amen.